This is the Roaring Elfin podcast for the 12th of November 2019, and I'm joined by my space happy, space crazy co host Dave in his spacesuit far away in space somewhere. Space. <laughs> I'm actually pretty happy on Earth, but, uh, but yeah, nothing wrong with space. Space is cool or hot, depending on where you are. Mm, yes, I guess that pretty much covers the whole space. <laughs> <laughs> so why are we talking about space Jan? I don't know I think it has something to do with the fact that you're out in the sticks in the boondock somewhere not having good internet this is true this is true but it's okay because Elon Musk to the rescue uh, maybe eventually in like 2037 no, 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 unless no, no, he gets no. bored and does something else it's it's a fact today internet in space is a fact because twitter works <laughs> and that's that's all you really need in life is well, just twitter i mean except for podcasts obviously what else do you do on internet <laughs> well i mean the advantage of, of of podcasts and the uh and and satellite internet is latency doesn't matter because you just download it and then you know, listen to it later so that's um, yeah, that's true. We're not streaming live. We're doing podcast MP3 downloads, and that should just work great. Because basically, that is what uh, Elon Musk with his Starlink uh, thing is trying to solve, right? Indeed, indeed. So the, there's been a few articles about this in the past. This is the uh, the latest one, which is an Ars Technica article entitled Elon Musk Sends Tweet Via SpaceX's Starlink Satellite Broadband. Blimey, that's a mouthful. It's a lot of S's. Um, <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, but yes, he, he sent a tweet. In fact, he sent two tweets. He said he sent one that says, sending this tweet through space via Starlink satellite. And then another one a few minutes later, whoa, it worked. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was kind of amusing. But the, the idea behind this is uh, satellite broadband has been around for quite some time. Um, one of the more interesting things here is that um, satellite broadband has also been known for having hideous, hideous latencies. Also, um, in, amusingly enough, um, terrible upload as well. Um, so mm -hmm. typically you would have um, a sort of a satellite link which would provide your download, but your upload would be through traditional copper, uh, copper cable over the ground. Um, now, this solution is supposedly both upstream and downstream, all delivered through satellite, and uh, as, as Jan mentioned before we started recording, significantly higher number of satellites because mm. they are significantly lower to the ground. Um, I, I, I sort of, I, I took this with a pinch of salt until I started reading the article, Um and they've launched 60 satellites so far, which you think, oh, okay, yeah, almost 60 done. satellites. Yeah, almost done. well, apart from the fact that they're talking about the company has actually FCC permission to deploy up to nearly 12,000 satellites and actually wants permission to launch as many as 30,000 more. Mm -hmm. So is that 30,000 on top of yes. the 12,000? Yes. Dear God. I mean, there's there's already very, very significant issues around um, the amount of space junk that we have mm -hmm. flying around up there. I, I mean, 40, you know, 42,000 more satellites up there. Uh, I don't even want to imagine what those, uh, what those paths look like. 
Yeah, but um, the thing here, of course, is that because they're in a lower Earth orbit, they are in a separate, different band. Because a lot of people think that Space Junk is just one thick band going across the world or a shell no, around it. There's different layers, of course. And the whole thing about having to ask FCC permission is that they are supposedly... I'm not sure how good they're doing their jobs there, but let's just trust them, as we trust government always, that they look around at things like uh, space debris and stuff like that, because uh, as a normal person, we don't really care, because it's not like it's going to be that low that's going to hit me in the head, but things like astronomers who want to look outside uh, our little uh, Earth orbit, they are actually getting into trouble because a lot of space debris is uh, flying across their screens. That's why I have um, uh, telescopes in the most remote places on Earth. Uh, this will definitely not make their life uh, better because they have to look through all of those things. I think the, the sort of telescopes in remote places is more about light pollution than it is space debris. But the bigger problem is actually that transition from ground to space. And the more the more stuff you throw up there, the more complex the uh, launch window and, and flight trajectory and plot is to make sure that you don't get hit by something on the way through. So SpaceX is also uh, ironing out the technology for what they call user terminals. And this is something that that all of a sudden confused me. Um, my assumption is that the, uh, I guess the connection to this satellite network is, is actually just... Uh, it's just an internet connection, essentially. It goes through there, um, the Starlink network, but it, it just comes down you know, and then connects at the other end to the internet, which would make sense to me. But then it, it talks about user terminals, and I I think, having read a few articles since then, I think what, what they mean by that is that's the, the apparatus that actually sits, you know, on slash in your house receiving and sending the uh, the signals. So I don't think it's like a dedicated Starlink terminal that you can use the internet from. I don't think that's quite what they mean. Um, I don't know, but, because I would have thought that was a modem. Well, I think it is a modem. A satellite but, modem, basically. But Yeah, but but that's that's what I said. It's the apparatus that's used to communicate upstream and downstream so it's like a big box that sits on your roof but talking to satellites controlled by spacex they want you they want to control the endpoints basically oh yeah they, um, well they'll need to control them because obviously um well not obviously but so these are not geostationary um satellites these are moving satellites and therefore it needs to continuously track um, satellites as they're going over, so it will need to be controlled. Interesting, because I'm actually wondering how this is going to conflict with uh, some EU um, legislation that's coming out soonish that actually uh, mandates that uh, internet providers, ISPs, can no longer say you have to use our modems. I should be able to go to whatever supermarket sells modems, buy a modem, plug it in, and make it work. Um, now, uh, quite often the case is that uh, your provider will tell you, yeah, sure, you can do it, but if it doesn't work, it's not our fault, it's not a problem, you can buy out, you can use our stuff, or you can use your stuff, but if you use your stuff, figure it out on your own. That's no longer, yep. that, that won't be allowed anymore. Now, this does look like, okay, satellite is different than an ISP that's using fiber or copper or anything, 
But it does kind of feel encroaching on that. And I do wonder, he's using the word user terminals and not modem. So I do think there's something nefarious going on here. He wants control. But it's going to be beautiful. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's interesting being someone that is uh, has been waiting over or nearly a year for, for fiber to... Um, be provided by someone that I've actually paid for. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe Elon will uh, will get here before OpenReach does. Save the day. Time will tell. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's. I still wonder. I mean, at the moment, you have two technologies really reaching out across the world. If one one part we're, we're putting fiber everywhere, which is great for the industrialized world. Let's say there's been some satellite coverage of uh, the less industrial world already. This would be a big boon for that but I know that Google is doing uh, some stuff with their balloons and uh, thing and, and that kind of uh, uh, technology mm-hmm. uh, this seems to be competing with all of the above let's say well interesting they got 60 up only 40,000 to go should be done by next week right <laughs> not like Elon Musk was ever late on a promise <laughs> <laughs> oh oh I didn't say that I was thinking it but I didn't say it I know you were thinking it I thought I'll take the burn it's okay <laughs> there we go well you know from from the mouth of yawn what can I say uh, whatever you want because I won't be hearing it anyway because my satellite network just went down oh <sighs> terrible <laughs> Anyway, moving on, moving on. So, talk to me about the quantum. So, we're talking about Quantum Leap, that that great sci-fi TV show, yes? Uh, It's a great TV show. I mean, if you haven't watched it, I have all of them on DVD, so you can borrow them from me. Not copy, but borrow. We we, we don't want to do bad things here. But no, sadly enough, time travel isn't part of this, but it's actually a... Oh, let's let's call it is the new battle of technology going on. We had AMD and Intel going a couple of rounds. We had NVIDIA and ATI going a couple of rounds. And now the same thing is starting in quantum computing because a couple of weeks ago, Google said they achieved quantum supremacy. And how badly a choice of that word may be, I'll leave up to you. But it is something that's been used in the quantum world for quite a while. Now quantum supremacy is a thing. Uh, but Google said they had it. And now IBM said, nope, you don't. And stop using that word, please. So i got two articles linked from here, one from the Register, who's a bit more inflammatory, and one from Technology Review. So whatever your preference is, you can get information from there. But we've been talking about things in the past called uh, big data washing and more recently AI washing. And it, it, for me, it feels like we're on the edge, on the verge of doing stuff with quantum washing. Because this whole <laughs> thing, I mean, Google came out with this quantum supremacy thing, and yet technically they may have gotten that, even though yeah, IBM is now disputing that, and I am actually believing IBM. But it is in no way, shape, or form an indication that quantum computing is here today. It's not an indication that it's here next week, next month, next year, or even maybe next decade. We're far away from this still. But the marketing but isn't, around isn't, it is, uh, isn't quantum one of those things that it is in such a level of infancy that you know maybe Google did have quantum supremacy for all of five minutes, and then some researcher stepped out of his lab and go, no, no, actually, I've got it now, and it's just like something that that flips backwards and forwards between organisations almost on a daily basis. Not in this case, because the idea of quantum supremacy is whenever you can calculate something on a quantum computer, which is not 
physically possible to be calculated on a normal computer, on a normal X68, uh, 68, that's a new one, <laughs> X64, <laughs> 64-bit uh, CPU, I was going to say. Mm-hmm. So AMD 6, uh, whatever. On a normal computer, Intel AMD computer. And what I, uh, Google here said is that they had a very theoretical pr- computational problem, which by Google's uh, reckoning would have taken over 10,000 years to calculate on a normal computer. They were able to uh, calculate on their quantum co- computer with 53 qubits apparently in a couple of minutes or something like that. And the idea behind quantum computing is, okay, when normally it would take 10,000 years, so practically impossible on a normal computer, and you can do that same computation actually work in a quantum, then you can do something with quantum that you cannot practically do with normal computers, and then you have achieved quantum supremacy. Idea being that once you do one thing like that, it'll just be an easy slope downhill to do all the rest as well. Which is basically not how it's going to (laughs) happen. But, so, what are the things that I'm not terribly clear on? So this, Google's... um, Google's claim of quantum supremacy actually came through a research paper that actually hasn't been published, but there was a draft leaked. Yeah, I think this is the peer review thing that kind of got out of hand a bit. (laughs) But then, then, so they, they potentially claimed quantum supremacy in that particular paper that hasn't actually been published. And then if you look further down... It turns out that while IBM are disputing that, they they propose a, a whole bunch of other optimization techniques, but they also haven't tested it. So it, it, this just feels like a, a load of he said, he yes. said, she said, yes. with no one actually having anything that they can point to in reality. It's all just people throwing theories at each other. So I would argue that neither have uh, have achieved quantum supremacy. They've just written a lot of words on paper exactly. that may or may not be backed by fact. And that's my thing about the data, the big data washing, AI washing, now quantum washing. Quantum is the next big thing. So people are going to start throwing this word out left, right, and center. Because the most important word in this whole article is glossed over and that's reliability mm-hmm. reliability in quantum is very very important don't forget that these quantum computers these qubits uh, they run at uh, zero kelvin they're using mm-hmm. superconductors that only work at very low or well, zero temperature you can't get more slower than that and they're still as fickle as uh, fill in your own acronym there i was going to say one which isn't good for a clean tag um, <laughs> and basically, with 53 qubits, there's no way that Google can actually calculate anything reliably, because any kind of influence, even as minute as possible, will skew the calculation. And as long as you can't do that calculation more than once, <laughs> you can't say you have anything at all. The whole industry at the moment is looking at stable qubits, and stable qubits, those are called logical qubits. Um, Typically, one expects today, the, the, the general consensus is that you will need at least a thousand real qubits to get one logical stable qubit. So, <laughs> I mean, so they talk about um, the fidelity or uncertainty mm-hmm. uh, inherent in quantum systems. So is that the same thing or is that different? Uh, no, that's not the same thing, actually. If you're talking about the uh, uncertainty principle, then that's basically the fact that when you make a quantum computation, the result has all possible answers up in the air, let's say, 
And when you then actually read the result, you measure it in some way or fashion by listening or looking or having an electron gun looking at it. I don't know how you do that. It coalesces to one certain uh, position in that. So as long as you haven't read it, you actually don't know what it is. And once you read it, it may change. It's very crudely explained. <laughs> so so what's what's the... So that's the uncertainty. What's the fidelity p- component of that? Well, the fidelity then? component is that on top of this, because of these qubits being so unstable, the result that's up in the air could actually be wrong. Because as I said, these things had to have to work at zero Kelvin or are very close to. If you look at the Z-Wave ones, if you look at a quantum computer, they always, they always show you these nice renders of glass boxes. I think the last one from IBM was. But basically, they're very big refrigerators, which have to maintain a pure zero degree Kelvin inside. And then you have to kind of poke a wire through to do that measurement, breaking the seal, making sure it doesn't work. Now, if, if superconductors, if the, the, the temperature just fluctuates by a, a very small amount... It goes off, and your qubit certainly does strange things. Uh, electromagnetic interference, uh, cosmic background radiation has effect. It's just you need to have, and basically the whole idea of having a thousand qubits to have one logical one is, well, we'll do the same thing a thousand times, and the average will probably be the good result. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are different ways of looking at this, and that's actually the part that Microsoft is taking with their Majorana particles, which are... Mm-hmm. Uh, there are what are convoluted or twisted qubits, something like that, where they're actually not taking a single qubit, not taking a thousand of those, but taking a couple of qubits and entangling them in some fashion and way. And there's a number of scientific papers out there from the University of Delft. It's actually a Dutch company is working on that, Dutch university, sorry, who's working on that. So that's why I know a little bit about it. And that's with the idea of having those single qubits a bit larger, perhaps. Think atoms versus molecules, but not in that size. Yeah. But just a compound of it and make that stay, stay more stable than the single qubit. And then you don't need a thousand of them, but maybe a dozen or something. So the thing is that whenever people are saying, we have a hundred qubits, a thousand qubits. Well, no, nobody has a thousand yet. I think IBM has now a couple of hundred, max, something like that, mm-hmm. or Google. We're still far away of having anything that's reliable. And reliability is something that we hopefully can solve by adding more qubits or getting better understanding of the quantum principles and building better logical qubits. The uncertainty principle is something that we'll never solve because that's just, uh, it's the law of nature, Captain. Right. So the 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 one comment that I like here that gives me a little bit of hope for the future <laughs> is that uh, there's, there's one sentence that just says, uh, talking about quantum computers, uh, ones that can crack modern codes will likely take decades to develop at a minimum. So this gives me a little bit of hope that perhaps the age of quantum washing is a little bit further away than we than we perhaps think. I think so. But I, I do think that the, the age of um, quantum PR washing is very much here and yes, now. Exactly. I just think the idea of people um, wrapping quantum around their general marketing blurb for their particular service or product is probably still a little way away. Mm. Nah, I think it's going to be closer than you think. I mean, if we get the, the, after the decade, if you have the actual working stuff, it'll probably go away because then people will know, oh, it's just that. But now everybody is so, nobody knows exactly what it is. I mean, I think uh, somebody said that there's like five people in the world that understand quantum mechanics. Uh, nobody knows what it is, so you can use whatever you want, and it always works, just like with AI, basically. AI was a lot <laughs> more popular before people actually understood how 
dumb AI basically is. And with quantum, it's going to be the same thing. I, I look forward, we're going to have our uh, future prediction show coming up a bit later this year, but I'm looking forward to uh, having this one on my list, to be honest. You'll see quantum underwear appearing in a store near you soon. Or maybe you won't. We'll have to see when we measure it, whether it appears or not. Well, the basics going to be the Emperor's New Clothes, right? You only will know if it is underwear when you put it on and look at it. <laughs> oh, quantum <laughs> jokes. Anyway, your AI comment was very timely because we're moving on to the next article. It's all about, apparently, AI deciding whether or not you deserve a job or not. Yeah, when I when I read this one, I I, I physically shuddered. I, I physically recoiled from this. This was this was so much horrible things flashing into my head at the same time. I, I'm just going to read the title here: A face scanning algorithm increasingly decides whether you deserve the job. It's an article from the Washington Post about mm-hmm. a company called HireVue that you as a company can uh, hire <laughs> to do the, uh, I would say, first interview with a potential candidate for a job. And they basically ask the person a number of questions. A little bit of, it's a little bit like an IQ test-ish thing. Not really that far, but you, you give you some puzzles and stuff and questions you need to answer them. It's all automated and they, you have to have a video. So you have to do it on your phone or on a laptop with a camera or something like that. And they analyze your facial and gestures and everything to decide if you're a good fit for that job using, obviously, a highly intelligent artificial intelligence. Now, who in their right non-artificial mind thinks this is a good idea? I cannot possibly imagine. But the, the very thought of it just makes... Yeah, I have similar levels of recoil with uh, with the whole idea behind this. The The whole process of hiring people is... Um, is very time consuming, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, as as someone that is you know building and hiring a team, I can definitely understand the uh, the requirements that people have that are you know hiring huge swathes of people to want to streamline that process and you know, weed out people earlier on and all that kind of good stuff. But there's there are so many things about machine learning and AI that we've talked about a number of times from you know the um, the biases that exist mm-hmm. in training data through to, you know, the, the nature of some of these things being very much black boxes. Yes. So like, how, how do you, how do you even um, provide an explanation to a yes, candidate exactly. about, you know, why they didn't get that job? And also how do you know that that particular, um, you know, this particular model is, is screening out the people that you don't want and, you know, promoting the people that you do want to the next yes. level. I, I just, How do you there's so many categories? things about this. How, yeah. What are the categories? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking for a sales guy. Uh, I guess he needs to be washed and wear a suit. I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I think this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be looking at, I would guess things like, you know, does the, does the person maintain eye contact? Nope. Um, they no? essentially say you don't have to watch the camera. <laughs> if that uh, makes you nervous, I don't know. No, they're really looking at body language, which I agree when I interview people, which I've done in the past, body language yep. kind of shows me uh, basically, okay, he's telling me something. Is he full of shit or is he actually from memory reciting something or really thinking this through. There are some visual clues that tell you that. But 
that doesn't give me any kind of linkage to, I mean, the, the content of what the response is. I mean, even if he learned it by rote and he's a sales guy, that's the position he's learning and he's, he's going for some stuff, technical stuff, sales guys don't have to understand as long as they can repeat the thing and then say, if you want to know more, go to my sales, my, my, my pre-sales guy. That's fine. I don't mind. So, and it's also not looking at the text. It's not doing any speech to text and looking at uh, the content of your answer. It's only doing the camera visual recognition of body language, as far as I can tell. And the thing is that this is not just a, an idea. This is actually a company, a commercial thing that is yeah. being used today already. Now, the f if I was ever in a situation that I had to do this, I mean... I would really have to be really, really, really down on my luck before I would actually agree to do this. Because if a company has so little respect for potential candidates, how do they expect me to respect the company? So the, the interesting test for this, so there, there are a few um, companies that uh, are sort of discussed as, as uh, case studies. So one is um, Hilton uh, International... Uh, where is it? There, here we go. So they they um, reduce their average hiring time from six weeks to five days just by letting the the AI system score everybody and then just mm. literally speaking to the top candidates. The other one is Unilever, um, which they credit of this system helping them save a hundred thousand hours of interviewing time and roughly a million dollars in recruiting costs a year. Um, and they, they also do mention things like it's it's um, helped steer managers away from hiring people that look exactly like them, boosting the company's diversity hires and things like that. And I think that's all well and good, but the test isn't, in my mind at least, the test isn't how much does it improve your your hiring process? Mm -hmm. Because you can speed that up like infinitely just by hiring the first, first person you speak to. <laughs> exactly. Um, or, you know, or just you know, doing a keyword search and ranking CVs, and then just hiring immediately. If you want just a really fast process, sure, go ahead and do that. The real test would be, you know, twelve months, two retention. years down the line. Yeah, well, not just retention, but how have those people performed? Mm -hmm. You know, have they crashed and burned? Have they left the organisation? I, I, I really don't. I'm sure this this company has a, a very good and very interesting sales pitch about how, you know organizations that have been that they've been piloting with have great answers for this but i you know there's there's nothing that talks about that here and that would be my my number one concern is yeah the the, the stats sound great but I don't necessarily think the stats mean anything in this particular Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, 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 was talking, I was making the note, high, high, uh, hiring speed is, does not equal retention or good functioning. And yeah. I think it's actually going to be adverse to the whole thing. Because, yes, you want to avoid the uh, manager to hire lookalikes. But you solve that Always. by having a team. That's why you have yeah. more than one interview with different people from different branches of, yes. the, of the organization. If, you, if you're a one-person company, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. But that's where most companies, reasonable companies, go to. The advantage, however, of having actually been talking to people and people having told uh, the HR, yes, I believe this is a good candidate, we should hire him, is they will take on a certain amount of responsibility for that hire. And it will become a little bit of their 
job pay perhaps to make sure you mm -hmm. are successful within the company you will get guidance you yep. get mentorship all from the fact that they interviewed you whether it be officially uh, proceduralized or just just happens that's one of the yeah. reasons i want to talk to managers so i can have some kind of rapport and if i do an interview and we really don't see the eye to eye yeah sorry we shouldn't go on with this this is not going to happen yeah. because you need that with these kind of solutions any person in the company can say, yeah, I don't take responsibility. The AI guy said it was a good candidate and I, and I hate him. He should be gone. Anytime <laughs> something goes wrong, he's the scapegoat. I have no responsibility, no connection. I don't have any any, any stake in this person's success at my company because AI made it so. And that, I think, is a very big underlying danger with these kind of things. I think there's a there's the flip side to that as well, which is on the, the candidate side, if... So that it talks about the the hiring process. One of the the cases here is you know changing it from six weeks to to five days. Um, the the conversations that you have during hiring should be you know as a as someone that is looking to hire people, you spend probably maybe two thirds of your time you know trying to work out whether you think this candidate is good but you probably spend at least a third of the time also selling your organization as mm -hmm. a great place to work yep. it's definitely both of those things have to take place and should take place pretty much at every single interview apart from you know maybe if you're only doing a, a, a you know like a practical exercise or some sort of test or whatever but even then it should be based around you know for a technical role the tech that you're using in which case you should find the tech cool and interesting and i just this this whole thing about um you know ai ai said this candidate was good therefore we had a, a few quick reference calls and and they yeah. were on board you know a day later I, you know you don't get a chance to build all that so also to your point earlier about retention you know, maybe maybe that is actually a really important part of of uh, employing people. I I happen to think it is a really important part. Um, maybe maybe Unilever and Hilton Group don't think so. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, whenever I interview, I always. I mean, when I am uh, looking for a job, I mm. always assume it's going to be a three to four week process at least. I mean, uh, I usually work for distributed companies as well. Uh, stay mm -hmm. tuned for more information on that subject, by the way. Um, mm. but, and you have to talk to different people. I want to have conversations with my, with my potential manager and hopefully with his manager to see if that, that goes together. And I ho hopefully, I always ask, and if it doesn't work out and I'm kind of okay, maybe not, but I always ask, can I just spend half a day at the office? Just walk around, yeah. fly on the wall, see how people behave, how people interact. And that's very enlightening and... I mean, I used to work at Microsoft. I, I, I keep coming back to this one because it's a big company. Everybody knows it. And Microsoft has a certain idea, a sign of image it conjures, let's say. And when I interviewed for them, my first idea was, well, I'll interview, but I don't really think I'm a good fit there. And I went there. I spent half a day at the office there and in the group that I was going to be working at eventually. And that kind of changed my mind. So from the company's point of view, getting good hires also means, as you say, getting that trust relationship going both ways, having the interviewee yeah. become comfortable with the idea of working there. And yeah, I mean, again, if this would be 
we have uh, a million applicants per, per month. We can't just do them all. We don't want to do a quick alphabetical listing and take the first 10. Okay, we'll do a first thing with uh, AI to weed out the really bad apples, I guess, I don't know. And then we'll go into that three to four week process. I'd say maybe this is defendable, even though I don't think it is still. But that, would, but if they're actually saying no, three days done, that's impulse hiring. And that's bad yeah. on both fronts. Yeah. I, I've just had a had a quick look as I was scanning through the article. They do actually they do actually look for eye contact. Uh, that is one of the things they measure. Oh, interesting. Um, per- perceived enthusiasm is another <laughs> and facial expressions. Um, perceived enthusiasm. That that just makes no sense at all. <laughs> Yeah. It's actually funny because uh, there's a video at the top of the page, which is actually the commercial video from uh, the company HireVue, where the guy mm-hmm. actually ex- explains, "Okay, you're, you'll be in, you're, you got an invite for one of our HireVue interviews. This is going to be, uh, this is going to happen. This is how you should prepare. This is how you should sit down and prepare the, the the environment with lighting and stuff like that." And he actually says, "Don't feel obliged to watch the camera because that's not necessary." So mm. uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that person didn't get the job. <laughs> how, maybe it's the reverse. If you have too much eye contact, that's a bad thing. Because basically, if you're doing eye contact with a camera, you're actually looking at yourself, which is basically narcissism, basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah, I think you and I agree this is not, not something that we would, uh, we would want to be how would you solve a, it then? a part of. Because let's say you're an organization, you want to get good candidates, you're willing to pay for them, and you're a good, you're a, you're a well-known company. You're one of the the big Silicon Valley companies out there. Everyone wants to work for you. You want to get the good people, and you're happy to pay for them. How do you get through the masses to get to those people? What's the best approach? How well, how can you solve this if you don't do it with AI? I I think the old-fashioned way you get bunch of people in your team screening CVs in the first case of applicants. Mm -hmm. You then, you parallelize the initial screening calls as well, ideally through, you know, an HR team or a recruitment team, but you can also do that through your own team as well and make those calls as short as as is practical. I mean, I'm actually describing the process that I use right now. So literally 15-minute calls with potential candidates. We try and limit to 15 minutes for that first interaction just because there's a significant volume that we're trying to work through. And you won't know everything about a candidate, but you you should get a very quick, you know, gut feel within that timing. Then moves on to the people that go through that stage and are successful at that stage the batch goes through to a 30 minute call with the manager, me in this case. And then, you know, you, that digs into something a little bit, a little bit more intense. And from there it goes through to a practical exercise, which is relatively challenging. And, you know, again, you know, sees quite a few people drop out at that stage. On from that, very few people get through to that stage. Um, and the practical exercise is both, a presentation, the candidate doing a live demo that they've built themselves, and also uh, you know thirty minutes of Q and A, both their ability to question the audience and or the panel, and the panel's ability to quiz them, and then you know you've got a, a few um, 
reference checks and uh, or reference calls and um, you know final sort of senior manager interviews at the end. But I, there's no, I don't think there is any kind of real rocket science here that you can use to to make this process super clean so you can get everything done in five days. I do think smaller, well, not necessarily smaller, but I think more agile companies can prioritize hiring better. I think some of the, the challenges and some of the horror stories you see and hear about candidates spending like literally months in a in a recruitment pipeline. I mean, to me, that's already a terrible sign that you know you definitely shouldn't go down this route. If if a if you're spending months, you know, weeks in between interactions with an organisation, it's probably not a good sign. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, what's your view on uh, internal referrals? Because uh, what I do like is if you have a team that has a certain size, these people work for you. You actually respect. You know how they think a little bit, you know what kind of people they are, that will probably yep. be a reflection of their peer group of the people they interact with. So if one of my colleagues would bring up a, oh, I've got this guy, he's working there, he's doing great stuff, we, we should talk to him. Um, there's probably some bias in there. So definitely the person that's bringing the, the, that new interview yeah. shouldn't be the one interviewing him, obviously. Yeah. But that does also kind of shortcut the finding the, the pearl amongst the swine. That's not the... <laughs> The expression, I think. No, that's definitely not. The, the, fun, the uh, white unicorn, that's the one. Um, okay. Uh, a, a little bit more straightforward for, for companies. I mean, what's your experience on that? Yeah, so I, I do I do definitely like uh, internal referrals. Um, I think they, they can certainly um, give a good indication that someone might be a good fit um, if the person that's referring has also already been a good fit. Mm-hmm. Because to your point earlier... Um, the there's a certain level of then investment in that person yep. should they get the job that right. the person that referred them will want to try and you know uh, try and success. make sure they are successful. Um, I would say though that just because someone is an internal referral, that doesn't mean that they get uh, at least in my opinion, it doesn't mean that they get a free pass. No. It also doesn't mean that um, you shouldn't do your you know do your homework. The the sort of the number of times that I've had, um, you know, an internal referral, and the the sort of maybe there are other people that I'm aware of in that network, and I do my own due diligence, and it's like that, you know, it doesn't necessarily bottom out the way that uh, maybe the the referee was hoping. I would say it's it's a relatively small percentage, but it's not insignificant. Mm. So you still need to do your due diligence. You still yeah, need yeah. to to dig into that in a lot of ways. Maybe there are some people that, um, you know, as a hiring manager, the work stops at you. You know, if, if you hire someone, um, that's that's your, you know, you have done that. And you can't just say, well, they were a referral, so I didn't <laughs> feel the need to. Like, that's no, that's no. just not good enough. You need to, you need to be sure... Um, just because it's a referral doesn't mean you can't uh, can't do your job. Yeah, no, it gets you into the door, but from that point on, it's uh, business as normal, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. The one thing I do uh, don't like is uh, companies giving bonuses to employees for doing internal referrals, because then it becomes a, a selling game, and I don't think that's positive, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I, I think it can... Um 
it can bring some kind of slightly odd behavior in mm. some places. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty aligned with that. I, I don't think it's a great idea, referral bonuses. But I can see why certain organizations, you know, do go down that route. And I, yeah. it's, it's one of those things that's quite natural for me. I'm always thinking about, you know, who in my network might be a good fit for this marketing role, this HR role, this sales role or whatever. But it's it's not something that is um, perhaps as clear or as um, as well done within certain other mm. you know parts of an organisation. In a lot of um, in a lot of areas of the organisation, people don't really don't necessarily think that way. So mm. I think it can be useful. It can be helpful, but I think overall it's a bit of a wash, and I, I think I would rather not go down that route. Yeah. It all also depends on the size of the company, probably the way that they do their hiring techniques. Coming back to the article, I'm assuming that things like Hilton, Unilever, those are not very small companies. So a, a normal startup will not be going this route, I would hope, because they would really want to yeah. give in their potential talent very well and i'm also kind of what's not really included in this although i didn't read and didn't click on all the links there is what kind of roles they were employing in this way if it's if you're looking for doorman maybe this makes more sense if you're looking for salespeople, pre-sales or highly technical data scientists or something like that ah, i don't think this is gonna work at all yeah anyway I think that's our that's our wrap up on this. I think anything else from you? Nope. I think you can wrap up the whole thing. Well, for today, anyway. For today, well, that is then all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution helps us create this high quality content. We're also on YouTube. Please like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all the YouTube stuff. You can also go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about this podcast. You can also follow us, mainly Jon, on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my not by ai proof name is Jon. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then. <laughs>